you'll find that the older you get, the more you will understand that this world is not our home, but you do not need to wait until you get older to understand this. We are living in a fallen world that is falling every day, living in fallen bodies that are falling every day. And in a spiritual sense, we are living in exile. Now, if you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, this is your home. This is as good as it gets. This is as good as it gets. But if you know the Lord Jesus Christ, you've placed your faith in Him, you have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, and you are learning to want to leave this world behind, and you yearn for your heavenly home where your heavenly Father dwells and reigns, in a body that's not only free from disease and death, but free from sin. For the believer, life here on earth becomes tiresome, fighting against your own flesh, wanting and yearning to worship God rightly without your own sin getting in the way. And yet, we're still called to live here and be salt and light. And so holding those two things in tension are difficult for us. They're difficult. How do you live with peace and satisfaction and joy without loving this world too much, but at the same time not walking around sour and bitter? That's, that's not a great testimony to the Lord. So we can look at how Judah was supposed to live in Babylon and draw some some principles that we can bring into our life as believers today. Make no mistake, Judah was an actual nation. They actually were brought into exile to Babylon. These places still exist on the earth today. We're not spiritualizing and allegorizing the Old Testament. We're taking principles that were true then and bringing them into our modern age and applying them to our walk as believers today. Before we get to Jeremiah 29, let's just look at Jeremiah 5.18 and 19. Just as a reminder, this was before they were carried off into exile. This was the warning God gave to Israel. That if you do not repent, that Babylon would come and breach the walls of Jerusalem and crush the holy city, and carry you off into exile. And God knew they weren't going to repent, and so he sent these words through the prophet Jeremiah. But even in those days, meaning when they're in exile, declares the Lord, I will not make a full end of you. And when your people say, Why has the Lord our God done all these things to us? You shall say to them, As you have forsaken me and served foreign gods in your land, so you shall serve foreigners in a land that is not yours. In other words, you wanted to live like the Babylonians? I'm going to let you live like the Babylonians. And it's not going to be as wonderful as you thought it was going to be. You had... The knowledge of the true God, you had a relationship with the true God, you had the word of God, and you rejected it for foreign gods, foreign ideas, foreign worldviews, 
foreign traditions. We've been saying all along that, yes, they actually, Israel actually worshipped false gods, Molech, Baal, Ashtoreth. But we don't want to fall into the trap of thinking, well, we don't have little idols on our mantles here in the modern world. Certainly, that kind of idolatry still exists in our world and even in our own nation. People do worship false gods, and there's actual names for them. But we also wanted to make the point clear that these false gods aren't real. They're not real. They don't really exist. They're God's little g. They're not real. They don't have thoughts. They don't have words. They can't command. And so what makes people want to worship these false gods if it's just a dumb idol? And by dumb, I mean can't speak. What we decided and what the Bible reveals to us is that the heart of man, the fallen heart of man, our fallen will, drives us to want either wrong things, things that God has forbidden, or good things for wrong motives. You can make an idol out of bad things or good things. It's when it becomes the most important thing to you in your life and you would be willing to sin and disobey God to get that thing or you'd be willing to sin or disobey God if you don't get that thing. Two sides of the same coin. Willing to sin to get it and willing to sin if I don't get it. Now you've got a God little g in your life. And you'll put the words into your God little G's mouth. And lo and behold, your God will tell you exactly what your fallen heart wants to hear. So again, don't think of Judah as, well, I'm not going to worship Baal. I'm not going to worship Molech. No, our, our fallen nature will make anything into a God and then we'll tell that God what to say back to us and then we'll worship our God. That's the way it works. We then justify our wants by creating our own truth. Our God little g creates a truth that isn't God's truth, and then that becomes our truth. And then we're able to justify our sinful wants and desires by saying, these are good things, I deserve them, they'll be good for me. But truth must be revealed to us by the source of all truth. You don't have the truth unless you have God's truth. Theologian Francis Schaeffer used to call it true truth. Because the word truth has been so abused in our culture that he had to make up a new term for truth. Oh yeah, I believe in the truth. No, I'm talking about true truth. Not the thing that you think is truth. True truth is outside of us. It's out here. It's above us. No matter how bad you believe in something with all your heart, if it's not true truth, then it's just, it's just a fantasy. We could use a, an example of, you could believe that there's no such thing as gravity, and that could be truth to you, and you could believe it fervently, but it doesn't make it true. 
and if you jumped off the 10-story building, you would find that your truth isn't truth at all. But that's kind of a hard way to learn that lesson. And so what God does in His judgment and in His mercy simultaneously is He will often allow us to experience the consequences of our false beliefs. In His judgment and His mercy. If He shielded us from the consequences of our false beliefs all the time, we would never what? We would never change our minds. We would never repent. If you shielded shielded your own children from the consequences of their foolishness, they may never learn. And yet, at the same time, some consequences are so extreme and lethal that we don't let our kids learn everything that way. And so God, being our heavenly Father will often allow us to have our just desserts. You wanted to live like the foreigner spiritually, I'm going to allow you to experience what that is really like. And there may be some instant gratification, but in the long run, we've all experienced that living outside of God's Word eventually leads to pain, it leads to destruction, devastation, it breaks apart relationships, it destroys. Oh, if only we would learn just by trusting God's Word. And yet, because of our stubbornness and hardness of heart, sometimes we must learn things the hard way. And you've done this as parents, like the father in the story of the prodigal son. This is not going to turn out good, but the boy's just not going to listen. So here's your inheritance, and you pray that it won't end in his complete and utter destruction. And you pray God will be firm but merciful. And so this is what's going on on a national level with Judah. You won't repent. You think worshiping these foreign gods is great. Well, I'm going to show you what it's really like to worship these foreign gods. They're not merciful. They're cruel masters. And so I'll send you to a foreign land and you will serve foreigners in a land that's not your own. I hope I'm making the connection clear between what literally happened to Judah and what happens to us spiritually in our unrepentance, in our disbelief. But God is faithful to keep His covenant. He had a covenant with the Jewish people. And in Christ, He has a new covenant with us. And imagine what it was like for the people to be living in Babylon. I mean, they just went through utter devastation. They saw thousands of their fellow countrymen slaughtered. The temple was destroyed. The temple that they thought could never be destroyed because God's glory dwelt in the temple. 
But God was clear to them and he said, if you're not seeking me with all your heart, then the temple's just an empty building. And so they're carried off to this foreign nation and they, they had to make that long trek by foot. And they're there and they're like, what do we do now? You'd be depressed, scared, confused, no will to, to move on. Our God has abandoned us. All is lost. And then this voice of hope comes. God has Jeremiah write a letter to the exiles. Now go to Jeremiah 29.4. And what he says to them is rather surprising. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Let's pause there. And God is reminding his people, it's not so much that Babylon drug you into exile. What's it say? I have sent you into exile. I am still in control. I know exactly what I am doing. You can still trust me. And he says this to them. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and become the fathers of sons and daughters. And because God would not violate his own law, it's implied, it's implicit that they were to take other wives who were worshipers of the true God, not take foreign wives for yourselves. Take wives and become the fathers of sons and daughters and take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands that they may bear sons and daughters and multiply there and do not decrease. In other words, start living in Babylon the way you were supposed to be living in Israel. I'm here with you. You don't need the temple. In the same way that God's glory led the people through the wilderness of Sinai, with, without a temple, God's glory can be with His people wherever they are. The key is when people seek God with all their heart, no matter where it is they're living, then God will meet us in that place. Isn't that good news? Doesn't matter what happens to America. Doesn't matter what happens in this upcoming election. You are citizens of heaven. Way before you're citizens of America. Welcome to Babylon. It's here already. It's been here for a long time. It's not like this happened overnight. One writer called our society a cut flower society. You cut a flower, a beautiful flower in the garden, you put it in a vase, and it looks beautiful for a few days, but eventually it wilts and dies. And yes, our country may have started on biblical principles and a biblical foundation and 
And that led to great blessing. And it still is, I would say, I, I can't think of another country I would pick to live in. As bad as things are getting, that Christian residue is still present in our country, but it's a cut flower society. It's not attached at the root anymore. And so for the last 30, 40 years, there was still a presence of things that seemed Christian in our politics, in our government, in our society, but it was cut flowers. And things are changing so rapidly. And for most people, they feel like, boy, everything was great up until maybe 10 years ago, and then it all just went downhill. No, it's been going downhill for decades. We just didn't notice. And so we have to get back to the root. One heart at a time, one family at a time, one home at a time, one church at a time. It's not like somebody's just going to step in and pass a couple of laws and we'll be back to whatever glorious vision of America we're all holding on to. You can imagine that the people of Judah and Babylon were saying, I just want to go home. I just want to go home, back to Israel, back to the way things were. Except they forget that the way things were was exactly what got them in trouble in the first place. Beloved, let's not pin our hopes on getting America back to some vision in our mind that wasn't even really reality. Sure, as much as people in a nation obey God, trust God, live according to His Word, that is going to make for a wonderful place to live temporarily before we get to heaven. It's a little piece of heaven coming down. When we pray the Lord's Prayer, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done, we're not praying that America would become the kingdom of God. We're praying that in the hearts of the inhabitants of America, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done. So don't give up hope. I hear in some Christian circles people saying, we're just not going to have children anymore because why would I bring children into this, this place? They're saying, I'm just going to wall myself off from the world, live in my little bubble. I'm not shopping here, 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 here anymore. i got news for you people. If you're going to continue to view America as the kingdom of God, you're going to be sorely disappointed. False expectations will leave you depressed and angry and bitter. Don't become a Babylonian. We're not saying when in Rome live like the Romans. But if you're going to avoid Babylonians... You're going to run out of places to shop, and places to have jobs, places to work. And you're not going to be able to reach anyone with the gospel. And if you're not careful, one day you'll wake up and realize 
Babylon has been in my house all along. Because what makes people Babylonians is the same sin nature that all of us struggle with. And so there's two mistakes we can make while living in Babylon. One extreme would be, well, I'm not going to be a Babylonian. I'm not going to go anywhere near those people. So what? You're not going to evangelize? You're not going to fulfill the Great Commission? And again, if you're not careful, your religiosity will blind you to your own need for repentance and God's grace. Remember, when Jesus came, it wasn't, it wasn't the Babylonians that killed him. It was the religious people who killed him. There was no room in their system for, for grace. They didn't think they needed to repent. So Jesus' message of repentance fell on deaf ears. The other extreme we could go to is, well, can't beat them, join them. The gospel gives me freedom to enjoy this world and everything it has for me. No, the gospel gives you freedom to say yes to the things in this world that God says are good and no to the things in this world that appear good and satisfy the flesh but only lead to misery and destruction. So neither extreme is right, and yet I understand, because I'm one of you, how hard it is to live in tension. How do I live set apart from the world while living in the world? How do I live set apart from the world while living in the world? And it's not like there's this perfect spot where you set the dial. I can't give you that today. It's more an attitude that's going to help you make course correction every day, every hour, every minute as you evaluate your life in light of the gospel. But the starting point is going to be this, coming to grips with the fact that I'm already living in exile. This is not my home. You see, when you have that perspective, two things happen. Number one, you don't get too attached to this place. So you don't fall into the trap of falling in love with the world and the things of the world. At the same time, what that attitude will also do for you is you won't get too depressed and sour living down here. You're able to thank God for what it is that you can rightfully enjoy while you're here on this earth. It's good to get married and have families and build houses and live in them and build plant gardens and eat the produce. You don't have to feel guilty about such things. Those are blessings from God, but they're temporary. The permanent homes and permanent garden and permanent family is waiting for us in heaven. So that's what we will have to help each other do. Remind each other that this place is not my home, but it is my temporary home. And so make the most of it while you're here to the glory of God. And hopefully that'll be such a compelling picture to the world that one by one people will inquire, how can I live that way? How can I have that attitude? How can I have that hope? How can I have that joy that you have? Well, let me tell you, 
You need to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and not in the things of this world. The things of this world will let you down. A fallen world that is falling more and more every day, and we're living in fallen bodies that are falling more and more every day. What else does he have to say to his people? He says, Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will have welfare. What? We're supposed to pray for our culture? That it would prosper? What God is saying is, Pray that the culture we're living in will prosper in as much as our culture is following the plan of God. But at the same time where our culture has rejected the plan of God, we don't want the culture to prosper in those ways. Why not? Because then the culture will never know it needs to repent. So again, you're holding two things in tension. Inasmuch as our culture follows the plan of God, inasmuch as our culture is still defining marriage as one man and one woman, it's not the entire culture that's thrown out the definition. We'll celebrate marriage and we'll, we'll pray that even, even if people are unbelievers and they get married, that they would enjoy the blessing that marriage is designed to be and that that may lead them to the truth of God. I know it's difficult to live in this tension, but this is what we're called to do. Pray for our culture that inasmuch as it is following God, even if it doesn't know it's following God, that it would enjoy the blessings of God. And inasmuch as our culture is disobeying God, may it all fall apart. May it implode on itself. I don't want to see unrighteousness prosper. My wife and I have this prayer for our kids that, Lord, if they're sinning and we don't know about it, may, may it be found out quickly. May they be exposed quickly. Don't let them prosper in their sins. Don't let them get away with it. And we pray that prayer for our own hearts as well. If I'm caught in presumptuous sin or sins I don't even know, may somebody call me on it. May I fall flat on my face. Don't let me prosper in my sin. So this is our prayer for our nation. And we're going to need this because as our culture sinks lower and lower and lower, it's going to be harder and harder to find that standard of Christianity that we we all want. It's going to be hard to find that place to shop at or that candidate to vote for. So I'm not going to stand up here and tell you where to shop and who to vote for. Not going to do it. You want to go to Target? Go to Target. That's between you and your God. And you you may see us there. We probably won't be in the bathroom, though. (laughs) So, 
But we're living in Babylon, living in exile here. We're going to have to figure out how to do this together. I think it's, in one sense, a wonderful thing. And here's why I think it's wonderful. I don't think unrighteousness is wonderful. I don't think people turning their back on God is wonderful. I don't really like living in this environment. But I'm looking for the positives here. And the positive here is that people will actually have to stop and think about what it means to be a Christian. And am I going to live that way or not? And that's a wonderful thing. Anything that makes us stop us in our tracks, out of our slumber, and think deeply about the things of God is a good thing. And when everything's prospering, nobody really stops to think this way. Let the good times roll. Ride that wave till she crashes. 100 miles an hour straight ahead. There's a cliff coming. I don't want to know about it. We'd rather sober-mindedly say a cliff is coming, time to turn around, but sometimes we don't. And if that means the car has to drive off the cliff, then our next prayer is hopefully we don't die at the bottom. That we live to drive another day and that we'll learn from our mistakes. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets who are in your midst and your diviners deceive you, and do not listen to the dreams which they dream, for they prophesy falsely to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. Would you believe that these false prophets who told them that Babylon would not win were still around prophesying and people were still listening to these jokers? How is that possible? I tell you how it's possible. False prophets always preach a message void of repentance. And the natural man in all of us does not want to hear a message of repentance. When we go on autopilot, we will listen to any message that doesn't make us repent. We will have our ears tickled. And with the internet and TV and a hundred billion channels to choose from, we will find the prophet who's telling us exactly what it is we want to hear. And so I say to you this morning, only listen to the prophet who has his nose buried in the word of God and who has come to an understanding about himself That he has to be on guard because his own flesh, even though he's reading the Bible, will be tempted to twist the Word of God and make it say what it doesn't say. Don't think just because somebody's preaching from the Bible that he's prophesying the Word of God. Make sure this man or this woman, whoever is the speaker, the teacher, the blogger, the writer, has a deep sense of their own fallenness. And they're always pointing you back to God, back to God, back to God, and not their opinion, their opinion, their opinion. If repentance isn't part of the message, I can tell you it's not a message from God. What else did God say to his people? I'm going to switch over to the NIV now because most people know Jeremiah 29.11 in the NIV. 
This is the one that's on the bookmarks and bumper stickers and daily devotions. This is what the Lord says, When seventy years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my gracious promise to bring you back to this place. Nobody reads Jeremiah 29.10 when they quote Jeremiah 29.11 because it will burst your hermeneutical bubble. Jeremiah 29.11 won't say what you want it to say if you read it with Jeremiah 29.10. But there's still a wonderful promise here for us. There is a great principle we can draw from here. But first, let's figure out what this meant to Judah. So here's these people in exile, in this foreign land, being treated as slaves. They need to hear a word from the Lord that's going to bring them hope. And God says, build homes and get married and keep living life because you're only going to be there 70 years. Now, for all the adults hearing that, that means they're probably never going to see Israel again. But, would you bother building homes and getting married and having children if you thought there would be no hope and future for your children? Let's be honest. At, at my age in life, you know what motivates me more than anything else? Is my children's future. I, I like my life. I like where it is. I, I love my marriage and my friends. And yet, day after day, I'm kind of yearning for heaven. And I don't know when that happens. Maybe when you turn 40. Something, something kind of changes. But my, my kids' future's in front of them. And, and my future grandkids, Lord willing... And I want them to have a hope and a future here while at the same time teaching them to put your ultimate hope and future in heaven. And so a lot of our energy is spent trying to help our kids have a good life. Amen? I think those are good biblical motivations to have. I mean, don't... Don't have a child-centered home where your child's sinful wants and desires become your mission in life. You'll, you'll spoil the child. You'll, you'll ruin them that way. But you know what I mean. I want there to be a healthy church for my kids to attend when I'm gone. I want Sunday school for my future grandkids. And nobody's going to want to teach Sunday school if the next generation is selfish and doesn't care about the Lord. And so this is a big reason why we do what we do. But God is telling them, look, I have plans to bring you back to Israel. In the same way that God built up the nation Israel originally in Egypt, where they were kind of living in exile and in slavery, and then brought them into the promised land, we're kind of acting out this whole scenario again here. And really, if you go back to Genesis 3, the scenario goes all the way back to the garden. They had paradise. They blew it. They went into exile. But God's plan of redemption is all about getting us back home, back to paradise. And so he says, after 70 years, I'll bring you back. So I... I know the plans I have for you. He knows the future perfectly, God does. 
I have plans to prosper you. And by the way, this you is plural in the Hebrew. We don't have a second person plural that's different than the second person singular. Unless you're from Texas. Then you got y'all. So, I got plans to prosper y'all. And not to harm y'all. To give y'all hope and a future. Amen. Amen. So have families and get married and build houses and have jobs. Because I'm bringing you back to, to Israel. And, and he did, didn't he? And wherever Israel has been disobedient to the Lord, and boy have they in their, their history, God is faithful to keep his covenant with them. And even as Recent as the 1950s, he brought them back to the land. And of all people, the United Nations granted nationhood back to Israel. And now they're kicking themselves for doing it. Because the world hates Israel because they're the people of the true God. So this promise is for them. And I know some people right now are like about to get mad at me because it's your favorite verse... And he's going to ruin it for me. And this is what gets me up each morning and convinces me that God is, has plans to prosper me and has a great hope and a future for me. Folks, you don't need this verse to tell you that. You have the whole New Testament. If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, he has plans to prosper you beyond your wildest dreams. And I am not talking about the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel that's being peddled in this country today. Because if that's his promise, then what do you tell the person who just heard that they've got cancer? I lost my job and I'm going to lose my house. My child has a terminal illness. I thought he had plans to prosper me and not to harm me. No, God tells us this is not our home. Heaven is, and that's where he has plans to prosper us. Be, bless us beyond our wildest dreams. He's able to do far more, exceedingly more, than we could even think to ask if God is for us, who can be against us, the New Testament says. Nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. You want promises you can take to the bank, the New Testament's filled with those promises. But there is a principle here you could take to the bank. If you are God's people and you are part of his remnant and you are a true believer, he does have plans to prosper us, not to harm us. Plans to give us a hope and a future and it's waiting for us in heaven. Read Ephesians 1. It's already happened, Paul says. We're blessed with all spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. We're seated with Christ at the right hand of the Father. We're adopted sons and daughters. The Holy Spirit is a down payment, a guarantee that these things are ours. You can live in exile here in Babylon and have joy because your future is so bright in Christ. Your best day on earth doesn't even come close to the worst day in heaven. Wow. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. This is repentance, people. 
still preaching repentance. And I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from captivity for Judah, literally. For us, when you seek God with all your heart, when you put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and ask Him to forgive you of all your sins, and you tell Him, I'm going to stop being my own God, little G. You are the God of the universe. I bow the knee to you, Lord. Then He brings you back from captivity, captivity to sin, captivity to darkness, and ushers you into the kingdom of light. And yes, for a time, we're still living down here in exile. But our salvation is so real and so guaranteed by God that He can say, I've already led you out of captivity. You're free. And those the sun sets free are what? Free indeed. Paul makes the point in Philippians 3.18, For many walk of whom I often told you and now tell you even weeping that they are enemies of the cross of Christ. So these are people who are kind of hanging around the community of God, but they have not put their faith in Jesus Christ. They have not been regenerated. They're still walking in darkness. They're still enemies of the cross of Christ. And their ultimate end, if they stay on that path, is destruction. And their God, little g, is their appetite. Literally in the Greek, their bellies. Whatever they want, whatever their little God tells them will make them happy, they chase after it. Never bothering to ask God what it, what it is that He wants for us. They may claim the name of Christ, but the way they're living demonstrates that their God is still their flesh. They set their mind on earthly things, their glories and their shame. The thing they take the most pride in in life is the things that God says should be shameful. But our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory by the exertion of the power that He has even to subject all things to Himself. The power Jesus has to create the universe and hold it together and make His sovereign plan come to pass is the same power, the same power that will conform our bodies into that of Jesus' resurrection body. So you see His point here. We're in exile Our citizenship's in heaven. This temporary life on earth is an exile. Our new resurrection body is our final home. These bodies were in exile for a time. And I know that's a hard message for for younger people sometimes. they're, They're happy with their healthy body. And all the world's my oyster and my future looks bright. And so, they haven't come to understand the way the more mature among us understand that, no, this body is not my home, and this world's not my home. 
You've been let down by your body and this world too many times. You, you get it. And yet, while we're here, we are to live in a certain way that brings glory to God. Live a life of gratitude and praise and thanksgiving. I had a question for my kids over breakfast a couple days ago. I asked them, at what point during the day do you have your first thought about God? When, when does thinking about God and the way God thinks about the world kick in? I need, I need to know these things as their parent. I need to know these things about my own heart. I should wake up each morning and my first thought should be about God. Thank you, God, and another day to glorify you and use the gifts you've given me to bring glory to your name. Another day to reach people with the gospel, to influence other souls for the kingdom. Every day an opportunity to praise Him. And throughout the day checking my heart and make sure, am I living like a Babylonian again? Am I thinking like a Babylonian or, or am I thinking like a disciple of Christ? And you have to train yourself to do this daily, hourly, every minute. Because when you go into autopilot, you sink kind of right back into living like a Babylonian. And you're surrounded by Babylonians in our world now. You can't just let the culture inform your decisions and your actions. They're not going to help you make godly decisions. Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. He said, Seek first the kingdom. And his righteousness and the rest of these things will be added unto you. This is what we mean when we say, Make God your highest priority. Stop trying to experience heaven on earth. Be looking forward to heaven in heaven. And we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And we live as citizens of the heavenly kingdom, knowing that for a time we're living as citizens of a fallen planet and fallen bodies. When we were born again, if you're born again, if you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, we begin to think differently than the world thinks. This is how you begin to live as a Christian amongst Babylonians. Ephesians 4.17, Paul says, So this I say and affirm together with the Lord, that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk. Gentile is synonymous for unbeliever, Babylonian. One one brother would use the term Philistines. Don't look like don't live like the Philistines. How do they walk? They walk in the futility of their mind. They they think futile thoughts. They just walk around all day and, and whatever they believe, whatever they think, they think that's, that's the right way to think. Never stopping to, to consider, maybe I don't know what I'm talking about. And understand that the unredeemed part of your flesh and my flesh wants to think that way too. 
And yet Paul's saying, do not live that way anymore. That's the way the Babylonians think. That's the way the Gentiles think. They're darkened in their understanding. They're excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them and because of the hardness of their heart. They, they choose to be ignorant, and because of their pride, they'd rather stay in their ignorance than repent and submit themselves to God's word, God's revelation, God's truth. I have a caution here. Remember, our residual unredeemed flesh still likes to think the way the world thinks. And I said it already once, but I'm going to say it again. Be oh so careful that you don't fall into one of those two traps, either Babylonians, idiots. I'd never think that way. That's the way the Pharisees thought. And the other mistake, hey, those Babylonians, they're not so bad. They're just people too. Which is true. Only by the grace of God uh, am I where I am today. That's the right thought to have. But before you know it, antinomianism slips in. Anti-law. You know, I don't want to be a legalist. And next thing you know, you're giving your flesh license to live like a Babylonian. You got way too comfortable living in the world. We're going to wrap up here next week. I'll I'll finish up with some thoughts about understanding the way that Babylonians think in our culture. You've got to engage the culture. You're going to have to live in this culture. It'd be helpful to know what kind of thoughts are going through the minds of the people you're going to run into. And you need to know how you're going to be tempted to, to think like them. If you want to hear a longer version of the 12 points I'm going to give you, which I got from Dr. Albert Moeller, you can just go on YouTube, type in Albert Moeller, and how the world thinks. How the world thinks. And whether you went from this culture or to another one or to another one, it's, it's a slightly different flavor the way unbelievers think. Our culture definitely has its own flavor, right? And so I think it would be helpful for us to know how our neighbors think, how our world thinks, so we know where the temptation will be, and so we don't have to be flabbergasted and just shocked and floored when we run into these folks, so we don't just run and and hide from them. So... I know some of you are intrigued and want me to keep going, but we're going to wrap up. And you, you can hear a one-hour version of this online if you're so inclined. Or you can wait till next week. In the meantime, though, can you skip to the very last slide, Dave? Romans 12.1 and then finishing in 18, kind of gives us a good idea of how to, how to live in Babylon. 
He says, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship, and do not be conformed to this world. Don't think like the Babylonians think, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. And then he has a lot more commands, but he kind of wraps it up in verse 18. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. If, if, if men want you to be transformed and conformed to this world for them to be at peace with you, then, then you can't be at peace with, with them. You can't celebrate evil with them. You can't celebrate absurdity and unrighteousness. But as much as the world will allow you, as much as it depends on you, live at peace with the Babylonians and build relationships with them so you can communicate the gospel to them eventually. And in the meantime, don't stop building houses, getting married, having babies, planting gardens, you know, regular life. I know that's what a lot of you are saying like about our country. Can't we just have a regular life like we used to have? Why do we have to change all the bathrooms? The whole the, the regular system worked just fine. I know. Don't get angry about it, but don't give in to it. Live a God-honoring life. And as best you can, live at peace with all men. And when people say, boy, your life looks different, well, let me tell you why it's different. Let me tell you about my Savior, and you can know Him too. Father God, help us as your children to live in exile here in this fallen world, in these fallen bodies, in a way that brings glory and honor to you, full of thanksgiving and praise, knowing that this is not all there is, but we have so much better waiting for us. And that even now we can enjoy those spiritual blessings that are laid up for us in heaven. And Lord, we do pray for our culture that where appropriate, it would prosper. And where prosperity would only lead our culture to more stubbornness, then, then don't let it succeed. Let it fall. Let it crash where it needs to crash. And so we trust in your goodness, in your perfect judgment, and in your mercy, Lord, that you are going to do what's best and right in this world that we live in. Thank you, Jesus, we pray in your name. Amen. Amen.